Thank you for joining Bringing Light into Darkness on the premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. We return to our interview with Mike Whitney as we examine the geopolitical context in the objective history of U.S. foreign policy with our special guest. Enjoy. Mike, earlier you alluded to a number of countries in which our foreign policy had the direct impact of toppling governments and plunging them into chaos based on our ill-conceived and ill-perceived foreign policy economic interests. Just during this past year, we have documented the same by empirically comparing quality of life indices such as poverty, extreme poverty, access to affordable health care, access to education, and other indices connected to life expectancy. And what we found in every case, as a result and outcome of U.S. foreign policy, whether it was Iraq in 2003, whether it was in Honduras in 2009-enabled coup, whether it was Libya in 2011, or Bolivia, or Ecuador, or the Ukraine in 2014, the welfare of the majority population, when it came to all of these quality of life indicators, precipitously declined. Millions died. Millions more were displaced, not to mention the refugee crisis for Europe that our interventions in Syria and Yemen and Ukraine, etc., have generated. Yet our Secretary of State, Blinken, claims Russia is the aggressor and it is Russia that is violating the world's rules-based order. And it is Putin that has been calling out these contradictions. And it is Putin that is demanding that it's not just the United States national security and foreign policy interests that should drive the world destiny. But go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just want to interject that point. No, not at all. I mean, I agree with you 100%. You know, basically, the United States sees Ukraine as a necessary part of its uh, geopolitical plan Mm -hmm. for spreading you know, military bases throughout Central Asia so it can encircle China and control its growth. That's basically the plan in a nutshell. That's what uh, Hillary Clinton called the pivot to Asia, rebalancing of our geopolitical aims from the Middle East to Asia, which is going to be the most prosperous and populous area of the next century. So we want our corporations and elites to be the kingpins in that area. And it's it just seems like such a an elusive and unattainable ambition, because when you think of the failures we've encountered in Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Libya, where you, you've got chaos left, but you really haven't achieved what you wanted to achieve there, mm-hmm. how are you going to yeah. do that against the Russian military? How are you going to do that across Central Asia, which is fairly stable? So it's just these people, uh, their dreams exceed their ability to perform. Well, not only that, but their outcomes just devastate the majority population. Millions of Iraqis died, you know, Libyans, the highest development index in the whole continent of Africa, down the drain, on and on and on. The the carnage left behind these forays of foreign policy are so, so criminal. Let me, before we move on, can you speak to, apparently Zelensky got in a shouting match with Biden, where Biden was doing most of the shouting in a phone call. This is something that's not been really reported at all, apparently, because Zelensky was not following the the U.S. lead. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. uh, Apparently, it was initially reported on CNN, and then they scrapped the story. But the story was already out there. But they basically had a shouting match, and Zelensky 
basically told Biden, hey, cool your jets, you know, we need to put a damper on this thing so that uh, we saying, don't terrify yeah. our investors and have capital flight and the rest of it. Very and just, then yeah. two days later, Jen Psaki says that, well, you know, maybe an invasion is not imminent. Well, yeah. they just changed <laughs> their story without any kind of background. It's just very similar to the Russiagate hoax, where there was no substantiation for any of the claims, and basically the media just makes it up as they go along. I don't know if they get daily talking points from the State Department or what, but so much of this is just completely fabricated and artificial. It makes you scratch your head. Right, and then no accountability. There is no apology such as, we apologize, we were wrong on X, Y, and Z. They just ignore it and move on and regurgitate it later on. But let's go on to your next, because I want to get to all of these questions. This is a really fascinating piece that you put together, and I want to remind listeners that we're visiting with Mike Whitney. He wrote an article in the UNS Review that you can access by going to UNS, UNZ Review. It's a February 3rd piece, What Putin Wants. The other questions, and we'll try to pick up the pace here a little bit so we can get through all of them, but that Ukraine has been in a state of crisis since the U.S.-backed coup in 2014. Have the warring parties settled on a way to end this conflict? What most people don't know is that there was a, a Minsk agreement back in February of 2014, or 15, excuse me. Uh, well, the but, first agreement was 2014, but uh, the yeah, two, the final agreement was in 2015, so well, you're explain, right. Explain both of them, and, and explain how the United States was not involved. Well, it's pretty simple. I mean, it was very straightforward. You know, the only participating members were Russia and Ukraine, you know, so it was just like, let's hash this thing out in France and Germany were participating, kind of overseeing the whole thing. But the signing was... Wasn't it the Donbass? Wasn't it Donbass representatives? Because I know Donbass was involved as one entity for the breakaway separatist... uh, Well, you might be right about that, but I thought the the actual people who hashed it out were... was Russians. You can look that up when uh, right, I looked right. it up the other night. But they were probably participating, uh, overviewing it or whatever. The Normandy group? Yeah. yeah. But, but the, the agreement was really pretty straightforward. It talked about disarmament, uh, troops and military equipment removing from the war zone. But it also provided, and this was the most important part, to recognize the de facto autonomy that's called in the agreement, it's called special status of the Donbass region. That's the predominantly Russian-speaking area that has basically been separated from Ukraine since 2014. And the reason it's separated is because the ethnic divisions, and as you know, the security services in Ukraine are run by neo-Nazis who would rather just exterminate all these people. And they've tried a number of times. There's been at least three offensives attacking that area, but they've fended them off. So these people are fighting for their lives. So if they don't have special status and they don't have virtual autonomy, they're not going to rejoin Ukraine. And that's the objective. Well, Kiev knows that. The Ukraine government knows that and originally agreed to the terms of Minsk. But since then, under the guidance of the United States, they've opposed it at every step of the way. So the actual peace agreement, which everyone agrees is the only way forward. They're in opposition to it, and they won't follow the terms of the agreement. That included France and Germany as as signatory exactly. uh, as oversight folks. So so let me just repeat. Sure. Let me just repeat that. There's only one way forward. 
okay? Mm-hmm. Everyone agrees that Minsk is the only way forward. It's the only way to end the war and to reunite the country and to just basically end the conflict, okay, mm-hmm. and, and lead to disarmament of the population, okay? There's only one way. That's Minsk, mm-hmm. okay? But like I mentioned just yesterday, the uh, foreign minister from Ukraine said there's not going to be any special status. Well, how can there not be any autonomy, no special That's like saying that the cornerstone upon which everything rests, the entire agreement, we're going to remove that. Right. Well, you have no agreement then. I mean, and he just blurted that out in public so much as to infer that this conflict is going to go on forever. Because, mm-hmm. And this reminds me very much, and, and I think if you look at the comparison, you, you'll understand what I mean. This is very much like the Korean Peninsula. The United States does not want a settlement. They want the status quo. They want their troops and their bases and their missiles and everything else in South Korea, and they want a puppet in Seoul, okay? So anytime there's progress towards reunification and they start doing commerce together and they start letting in families from both sides and stuff, the United States goes around and does whatever it can to stir up trouble, so we go back to square one and the lines are firmly drawn. This is exactly like that. Mm-hmm. The United States does not want a peaceful solution. They want the status quo. No, very good. Let me move on. We're doing okay in time, but I just want to make sure we get to everything here because there's all of these questions are important. So I'm going to combine these next two questions for you. You asked, did Putin expect the United States and NATO to seriously address Russia's security concerns? And the other was, is Russia using the hoopla over Ukraine to draw Washington into negotiations on the U.S. missile sites in Romania and Poland. So these are kind of connected, but also different questions that have their own uh, backstory, but they are connected to Russia's security concerns. And so let's start with that first one. Did, did Putin expect the United States and NATO to really address Russia's security concerns? Russia is on the top of Washington's enemies list, okay? It's right. number one, right. okay? Right. So <laughs> there was never any expectation. I mean, uh, Putin has dealt with the United States for over 20 years. He understands what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. So did he think that the United States would back down or cave in and give in to his security concerns of their foremost rival in the world? No, he had no expectation at all that that was going to happen. And I quote part from uh, Ray McGovern, who is a Kremlin watcher for the last 30 years, Mm -hmm. and he says, It strains credulity to imagine that Putin really thought he could get the U.S. and NATO to sign a document limiting NATO membership. And just real quick, Mike, and Ray McGovern was a CIA asset for 27 years. His specialty was on U.S.-Russian affairs. He's fluent in Russian, so he knows quite a bit about this subject. Go ahead. Yes, he used to give a security report every day to Bush Sr., the first Bush president. You know, So he was uh, directly connected to the White House, the CIA person who was providing that report every morning. So... But McGovern, he also points out that the likelihood of Ukraine uh, joining NATO because of the conflict, you can't join NATO if there's a conflict ongoing, is not very likely at all in the near term. It's in a state of transition and turmoil, and those are not conditions that NATO usually allows a member to join. The problem is, is that they're putting NATO infrastructure in place as we speak. So Mm -hmm. it's not like they are required to join. 
it's like they want to have a military presence that represents that uh, diverse number of countries in Europe to basically increase the threat felt by Russia. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how you get around it, because if you have to look at a map and see how close all of this is to Moscow, something has to be done. And if peaceful negotiations don't provide an answer, then Russia is going to have to look at other options. Well, let me just jump around just a little bit, because I want to, this is kind of connected to one of the things you get to towards the end of your article. You talk about an official state document of 2013 that Putin had written, concept of the foreign policy of the Russian Federation, and it's based on principles of equality, mutual respect, non-interference in the internal affairs of other nations. And along those lines, so when you talk about Poland and yeah. Romania, yeah. you know, which is sure. just within minutes from Moscow by air and or by missile, he also talks about this new world that's evolving, that the global system of governance and the polycentric model that's now emerging. In other words, there's no, no longer unipolar where the United States dictates to the rest of the world, but that there are other poly, other centric circles that have independent economic weight and influences and sources of, of independent virtues that should be heard in any type of democratic international marketplace under UN auspices as well, that type of thing. And this is precisely where the United States does not want to go. I mean, they want to maintain, we want to maintain our uh, hegemonic role in the world economy. As you said, coming out of World War II, everyone else is rebuilding from the, from the war. Now you have active competitors with Russia leading the pack, so to speak and therefore trying to knock them down a number of rungs, as we said at the beginning of the show. So can you tie that a little bit into I mean, geop the geopolitical you're, you're, thing? No, you're all over it, because, I mean, basically this whole crusade is built on economics. It's driven by economics, because just think about it for a minute. You have Russia that's supplying between 30 to 40 percent of Europe's natural gas, another 18 percent of their oil. So it's producing the fuel that is heating their homes and driving their machines and keeping their industry rolling along. At the same time, you have China, which is the biggest production center in the world, manufacturing center of the world, and they are extending their arteries, basically these high-speed rail and the Belt and Road, which is new sea lanes that are opening up for transporting merchandise and commercial things to, uh, around the world. So you have this entire new world that is being constructed in front of our eyes. And what does that mean when you have these production lines and gas transported from one continent to the next? It brings the continents closer together. And naturally, those continents start to cut the red tape, reduce the restrictions, and then they naturally become free trade areas. Well, who's on the outside looking in of that new world? Mm -hmm. And whose currency will no longer be denominated for paying for energy or natural gas or oil or even, to, you know, the commercial goods from China? It's going to be the United States. So they can see the handwriting on the wall. They can see if they don't set up a toll booth in Ukraine and basically it's just that the dollar is used for the transfer of natural gas and oil. If they don't take aggressive steps to become a larger presence in Central Asia, then the United States as a superpower declines at an accelerating rate. Yeah, it's, it's like an inverse, inverse rate. All right. Putin, 
Mm-hmm. All Putin, and it's not just Putin, but the entire Russian leadership has been saying from before 2013, that's why I brought up this, this thing, to just show people, if they read the document, there's nothing they won't agree with. Mm-hmm. The world is changing, that's all it's saying. You can see these power centers emerging, mm-hmm. the centers of new economic strength. It's not reversible. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. So, I mean, mm-hmm. what Putin wants to avoid is collision from some dying superpower trying to cling desperately to, uh, you know, a world order that is no longer feasible. Yeah, and so before turning to conclude the show with your comments about what Putin really wants, let's focus on that because I think that's important. We were talking about it the last couple of weeks about the Nord Stream pipeline and you write that that pipeline creates uh, economic entanglements. I mean, it's actually economic connections that will further strengthen the EU and Russia relations, which means that it undermines the regional authority that the U.S. has exerted over all that at this time. And so I guess in the context of that, there's also a number of of these EU nations, and I think most of them are NATO nations, are seeing that they are kind of getting thrown under the bus too, along with Ukraine, for the purposes of the United States hegemony, and they're trying to subtly push back, well, and, they're they're getting, and they're getting and they're getting whipped they're getting into line. Totally thrown under the bus. I mean, because well, they, look at if, if yeah. Germany doesn't have open up, and, and the pipeline as we speak is filled with natural gas, but yeah. the red tape is being piled on because the United States is doing everything, pulling out every trick in the book. Which, by the way, these sanctions are not legal under WTO rules. Mm-hmm. It's another institution. The United States just skips. Just bypasses yeah, it just, it just when it ignores, doesn't uh, meet right, its needs. Right. But you mm-hmm. can't just penalize a competitor who just wants to sell his damn gas. Yes, you, know? you can. That's we do it all. The, free... We do it all the yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Well, that we was that, it, that's what, that's not, what Merkel ran up not, against, right? Merkel got it, it, thrown, she got slapped. She reneged a couple of times with with Putin. Right? Went to Moscow and said, "Yeah, we'll go. We'll try to help out in this mince thing." And then. The United States got all upset at her, and then she went back and reneged on her promises to Putin, and as well as Nord Stream. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a back and forth. I mean, I hear what you're saying, and you're absolutely right that under international law and those types of things, we just violate anything we want when, when it accommodates our needs. When it comes to international law and ethics, we are reckless. We break treaties and agreements, whether signed by signature or by handshake. We ignore or compromise international law and then have the deep pockets, if you will, or I should say the hubris to use our quote unquote legal attorneys to rationalize our illegal and unethical actions by rendering some twisted interpretation in the justification which is then fed uncritically to the U.S. public by our mainstream media without oppositional contradictions ever even being discussed. And the rest of the world sees that, but we don't. And maybe to end the show, if you can speak to what Putin wants, but also how we backed out of the INF Treaty and the other nuclear treaties that has kind of opened the way for this U.S. penetration of Europe with really what Putin says is for the first time, right, that, you know, now for the first time ever, we got U.S. nuclear sites Really, we can call them in NATO, but they're U.S. operated, they're U.S. trained right here at our doorstep. And that's getting back to the the most basic 
compromise of, of national security. But can you talk about the INF Treaty back out? And, and sure, in uh, 2002, for no reason. And again, the INF Treaty was the cornerstone of global security as far as nuclear weapons go. And then a few years later, it was their Intermediate Range Nuclear Weapons Treaty, which kept the short-range weapons that basically protected Europe from these short-range weapons because, you know, by sweeping that away and repealing that uh, treaty, it puts Europe back in the crosshairs is what it does, Mm -hmm. which is certainly the people of the countries in Europe don't gain anything from that. But the United States does because the United States keeps pushing eastward. So what does Putin want? Putin wants just the system that we're supposed to have in place to be honored. I talked about the WTO, you know, basically this sanctions regime, which we've all come to accept as a a way that the United States can punish other people. That's completely inconsistent and illegal. And we just do it anyway because we have the power. He's saying now that these other centers of power are emerging, we have to recognize that the world is changing, and let's make this transition as, as peaceful as possible. Let's impose through the U.N., which still he believes has the sort of international legitimacy that no other institution has. I'm a little doubtful about that. But he, he believes that the U.N. can take a turn for the better and start applying the rules more evenly so that the parity between these states around the world, the countries around the world, is recognized more in an unprejudiced and unbiased way mm-hmm. so that everyone has a fair accounting. Yeah, no, he, he just wants to be treated as, as all nations, the inviolability of national security protections. Yeah. You know, that's really the bottom line. We, we've got this mantra that Russia is the aggressor, but I think you've laid out tonight and in your piece why the United States is so adamant in its policies here. It has nothing to do with trying to fight Russian aggression. It has to do with maintaining a unipolarity that is profoundly unfair to the rest of the world to begin with. And as you've said, and as is documented, there are economies that have been developing over the last 20 years while we've been invading and been in our little war machine interactions through all these other countries. They've been investing monies in other fashions and become much, much stronger than they were 20 years ago. And so now we have a multipolar. Yes. So what Putin really wants is because of his account of recent history from the last 30 years, what he's saying is that these new powers that are emerging, let's make the transition as peaceful as possible because the old order, the old dysfunctional order, is basically crumbling before our eyes, and we need to prepare for a world in which provides more reliable security for every member of the international community. And I think that's a pretty worthwhile goal. Very good, Mike. Listen, we are out of time. I want to just remind folks we've had the great privilege, and it is a privilege, Mike, your geopolitical analysis is so strong and consistent logically and and in the facts that uh, I've discovered in my own studies. And so really, I love the way you bring it all together in that way. But I wanted to remind people, we've been reviewing a lot of the content that you can study for yourself if you're interested in the article Mike just published today in UNS Review, UNZ Review, What Putin Wants. Also, Mike published a couple of other pieces just within the last week on the Russia-Ukraine situation as well. Thank you for making yourself available, and thank you for your writings. I look forward to your next piece. Thank you for having me, Pedro. All right. We'll see you next week. 
coming up next. Do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety. So oh.